There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. Father, we do thank you so much that you are the God who is on our side when attacks come and when the flaming arrows come. Lord God, Father, we do pray this morning that you would just meet us where we are, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you prepare us to hear your word today, Lord God? And wherever we are, Lord, help us to know that you're walking with us, that you're the God who fights for us, that the battle belongs to you as we experience spiritual attacks and trials and temptations, Lord God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid our penalty on the cross and you rose again. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory this morning. You are the God of angel armies and we put our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Good to see everybody here this morning. Good morning, church. Um, Welcome back for week eight of our series, Cultivating the Christian Life. Um, If you've been following along with us, we've reached rule number seven. Uh, It's week eight, but it's rule number seven. I know it's a little confusing. We had an introductory week, Uh, but it's a good one. Week number seven is fight with spiritual weapons or you will wage the wrong war. In other words, if you want to grow in the Christian life, you have to engage in what we call spiritual warfare. Our memory verse for this week is Psalm 68.1, which says, May God arise... May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. Actually, let's say that together on the count of three. One, two, three. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. All right. It's good to hear the word of God preach back at you. All right. It's a good week. Well, um, our God is indeed greater and stronger than our greatest foe. And so if you've got your workbook, please join me on page 100 and 101 as we dive into this crucial topic. In fact, if you're here today and you don't have a workbook, we did get a few more in this week, so come and let us know. We'd love to uh, get one of those in your hands. Now, spiritual warfare was on my mind uh, two weeks ago as I was watching the Super Bowl. And I'm sorry again for the Bengals fans out there. I blame Pastor Dave for their loss because he brought it up that morning. Um, but it did happen. Um, it, now, it wasn't because of the game I was thinking about spiritual warfare. It was a commercial, because most of us watch the, 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 the Super Bowl for the commercials, right? Um, this commercial caught my attention. Amazon premiered a trailer for a new fall series they're doing called The Rings of Power. And this series is going to be a prequel to the very famous Lord of the Rings novels and film series. And the internet has just been going crazy over this. Uh, I have to admit, uh, my heart skipped a beat. Uh, being the fantasy nerd that I am, um, 
If you don't know anything about The Lord of the Rings, it follows uh, the story of, among other characters, Frodo Baggins, the Hobbit, and Gandalf the Wizard in their quest to defeat the Dark Lord Sauron, who wants to rule the mythical land of Middle-earth. Over thousands of years, there have been many magical rings of power that were created, but Sauron made one ring to rule them all. You can see it on his finger right there. He's, he's a menacing guy. Uh, the people who wore this ring could control all the other rings, and whoever wore the ring would ultimately have their heart corrupted. And so if they wanted to defeat Sauron and his evil forces once and for all, Frodo and Gandalf needed to destroy the ring, go and put it in the fires of Mount Doom. The story is filled with battle sequences and is an unending struggle of good versus evil. Now, the original novel was published in 1954, and the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, I learned this week, wrote the story as a sequel to The Hobbit, and he wrote it over 16 years, which spanned World War II. And so I, I got to think that war was on his mind. To this day, The Lord of the Rings is the most popular fantasy book ever written. It sold over 150 million copies, and it's been translated into 38 languages, which is like Bible territory right here. It left an indelible mark on popular culture. New generations were captured by the story when the latest award-winning films were released between 2001 and 2003. And, and I open with this because I have to ask you, just why is a story like The Lord of the Rings so popular? Right? Why do so many people gravitate to the novel and to the films? 150 million copies is no small feat. Well, Tolkien's work, I think, is popular because it taps into this reality. We live in a world at war. We live in a world at war. People love the Lord of the Rings because in fantasy, it reflects real life. It reflects the reality of our spiritual lives. We have an enemy who wants to take us out, who wants to wound us, who wants to make us ineffective in the Christian life. I would assert this morning that spiritual warfare is the most neglected, one of the most neglected areas of Christian growth, and yet it is one of the most needed. We neglect warfare because we think Christians should be just nice, passive, you know, kind people. Or we think, well, I'm a Baptist, and so we, we'll do the potlucks, we'll leave the spiritual warfare to the Pentecostals. No, we, we live in a world at war, and our enemy will not stop attacking us or using dirty tricks. Now, you ask yourself, where do we see evidence of spiritual war in our lives? Well, we see it in physical realities. So we see it in actual war. And as I mentioned at the beginning, many of us have been drawn this week to the news about Russia invading Ukraine. And I find it ironic that the topic of spiritual warfare should be so perfectly timed in God's providence. Because for the first time in many years, we're talking about actual war in Europe. We need to pray for the country and for the believers there. We see spiritual warfare in personal demons. Right? How many lives have been impacted by the reality of addiction in the world? The opioid crisis sweeping our nation has gained, garnered much attention over the last few years. We see it in things like divorce where marriage is a beautiful thing, but often a war can start between spouses leading to the destruction of a relationship. It's a physical manifestation of a spiritual battle. We see it in abuse. Verbal, physical, sexual abuse are the result of a spiritual battle 
going on in the hearts of people. The enemy influences the hearts of people, leading to catastrophic consequences. These are all physical manifestations of an unseen spiritual war, and we need to fight against it with spiritual weapons. And that reality is why the Lord of the Rings is so popular. Now, last week, Pastor Dave kind of stole my thunder. He alluded uh, to the movies by quoting uh, Treebeard, one of the Ents in the movie. And if you forgot last week, an Ent is basically a tree that is alive and can speak. And so throughout the message today, I'd like to use some scenes from the Lord of the Rings to illustrate and depict battles to give you a visual image of spiritual warfare. And since our whole series is about trees, well, it's very appropriate that we begin with a scene of the Ents, the living trees, going to war. And so in this scene, Treebeard notices that the evil wizard Saruman has cut down half of his forest, and his response is anger, and he decides the Ents are going to enter the battlefield. Watch this scene. Many of these trees were my friends, creatures I had known from Nut and Acorn. I'm sorry, Treebeard. They had voices of their own. Saruman, a wizard should know better. that picture. Trees going to war. If you're going to grow in the Christian life, you have to become a tree prepared for battle. Fight with spiritual weapons. We live in a world at war, and we need to fight against the right enemy. So ask yourself throughout this message today, are you a tree ready for war with our enemy? Now, it's impossible to talk about spiritual warfare without going back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we were in a couple weeks ago. And you know, if you've read the Bible or you've been around church for a while, you probably are familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, where Paul offers his most comprehensive treatment of spiritual warfare, particularly because of the background of the Ephesian church. 
In in 8 verses, Paul tells us three ways we can prepare for battle. First, he says, you got to hold the line. Second, he says, master your arsenal. And then finally, rest in a greater power. So let's look at each of those points in turn. First, hold the line. Now, spiritual warfare is written, if you read the Bible, all over the pages of Scripture. After God creates the world, we are told in Revelation chapter 12 that there was a war in heaven. And Jesus tells his followers that at that war, he he saw in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And ever since then, he has been making war against God. Satan has been making war against God's followers here on earth. And then Revelation chapter 19 and 20 speak of a cataclysmic battle at the end of history where Satan will be defeated and he will be cast into the lake of fire. And so knowing this reality, Paul's words in Ephesians 6 explode off of the page and into our hearts. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now there's a few things I want you to notice right away about this first. First, notice that word finally. Right, so this is Paul's last word to the believers at Ephesus. He told them about the gospel, chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. He told them about their new identity in Christ in chapter 4. He's told them how to live in response to the gospel. And now he says, finally, finally, be strong. And where does the strength come from? The Lord. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not ours, his And this point is crucial. It lays the foundation for the rest of the section, and it's why this rule is just so important. Because too many Christians wage a spiritual war under their own power and not under God's. If you want to win the war, if you want to fight the battle, you need the strength of the one who is greater than your foe. In fact, Throughout Ephesians 6, Paul draws out Old Testament references from Isaiah where God is spoken of as a divine warrior who fights for his people. Isaiah 59, 15 to 17 says this, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one who to intercede. And then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on, listen to this, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So the divine warrior in this passage sees injustice on the earth and he intervenes. And throughout Isaiah, he is also the one who supplies weapons to his people for combat. Now notice right here he takes up the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, which are part of the armor of God that Paul mentions in verse 14 to 17. So given that background, you can see why Paul's first exhortation to the church is this. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the divine warrior. But he also calls us to take up arms in this spiritual fight. Verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, the word put on, that put on language, is the same uh, phrase that he was using in Ephesians chapter 4, which spoke about our identity. He said, put on the new self, the new identity. And it was a common word for putting on clothing. And the grammatical structure here indicates that this is not a one-time event. You don't just put the armor of God on one time. You put it on continually, daily. You armor up. 
Now we'll get to the actual armor in the next point, but there's two words right here I want to draw your attention to. The first word is the word stand. And that's extremely important in Ephesians 6 because Paul repeats it over and over again four times because he knows that believers will come under attack. And it's also important to note that the Greek used here does not simply mean that this is a defensive, po- a defensive posture. You don't just stand in defense. It can also mean we take an aggressive offensive stance against our enemy. So th- this is the reality. The spiritual warfare believers are called to engage in is, yes, both defensive and offensive against our supernatural enemies. And we need God's power to do this. He knows we're going to be attacked. And when we do, he says, hold the line, stand firm. Now, the second word right there is the word schemes, the devil's schemes, or other translations say uh, the strategies of the devil. And the reality is the devil is a a real, intelligent being who is carefully creating strategies that are intended to harm the church, God's redemptive plan, and individual believers. Satan wants to take everyone down. And so if you're going to hold the line against him, you need to recognize the enemy's tactics. Recognize the enemy's tactics. Now, recognizing the tactics can be kind of tricky, Uh, One of the best illustrations I've heard to to explain this is that of a piano. And what I mean by that is that imagine you're a piano, right? All pianos have strings that make music. And if you're a piano, those strings represent your desires, your, your temptations, your weaknesses. And what the devil does is he knows how to press the right keys in the right melody to play the strings inside of us. He knows how to use our desires and our temptations against us to weaken us. And so in spiritual warfare, you need to recognize his schemes and keep him from, you got to blunt the strings, keep him from playing the strings. Well, how do you do that? Ask yourself this question. If Satan was going to take me out, make me ineffective or ruin me, how would he do it? And if you don't know the answer to that question, take yourself back in your workbook to page 40 and 41. There's a whole chart about the seven deadly sins. And just take an inventory on where your weaknesses are. And then you'll know what string to look out for. You've got to stand firm against the enemy. But who is our enemy? Well, in verse 12, Paul goes to great lengths to make this very, very clear. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against what's behind flesh and blood. That's why we need to fight with spiritual weapons. Don't wage the wrong war. Because too often what we do is we fight people when we should fight the spiritual forces influencing the people. And who are the spiritual forces? He says they're rulers and authorities, which are common words for demonic spirits. He says there's cosmic or world powers, and that's a unique term that specifically reflects Jewish demonology. This present darkness... That brings it to the local level where Paul is warning the Ephesian Christians about continuing to face their local deities or idols. And as spiritual forces of evil is a comprehensive designation for all evil spirits. The point is, 
There are a multitude of unseen forces at work in this world trying to keep us from growing as Christians and trusting in God. That's their goal. In other words, you don't have to just recognize the enemy's tactics. You also must recognize the enemy's scope. And that scope is large. Recognize that because the attacks will come. And then verse 13 concludes the opening section with a repetition of these themes. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. So once you recognize the enemy's tactics and scope, suit up, stand firm. Hold the line. Attacks are inevitable. Now, Paul says here that we need to be ready to withstand in the evil day. And there's some debate about what the evil day refers to. Is that in the future, when the great tribulation is going to come? Or does that relate to the trials and the temptations that we face in the present? And I think the reality is that it's both. There will be many evil days in our lives and in history, and there will be those in the future. But Paul right here is writing to the Ephesian Christians about a present reality they are facing. And I want to show you what this looks like, so let me come back to the Lord of the Rings. I want to share, as I mentioned, several scenes in the message. In this one, Gandalf, the Grey Wizard, is helping Frodo Baggins get to the evil land of Mordor to destroy that ring of power and defeat Sauron, the Dark Lord. They have other companions on the trip, and the road is treacherous, and they wind up taking a path below the misty mountain. But Gandalf really doesn't want to go down below the mountain because he knows there is a demon there called a Balrog. Now, in his writing, Tolkien actually described a Balrog as a demon of terror. He's pretty scary. But this is like the picture of spiritual warfare right here. This is what it looks like. And in this scene, Gandalf, Frodo, and their companions are trying to escape this demon. But Gandalf stops and shows us what it means to stand firm, to hold the line. Watch this scene.
you fools. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I've seen that movie 20 years ago, and I, that scene has always stuck in my mind. Does that not look like what Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 is talking about? Paul is calling believers to stand up to the rulers and authorities, the spiritual forces of evil, and say, you shall not pass. And here's the question for you. What is your Balrog? Right, in your life right now, are you facing a day of evil? Because sometimes standing your ground means that you're going to fall, like Gandalf. But if you've seen the movies, you know that he was fighting that Balrog all the way down, eventually defeated him. He got back up. Spiritual beings are real, and we live in a world at war. Now, there's two key battlefronts we need to watch out for. The first battlefront is the personal, where there's a battle for our hearts, Satan will attack our identity through accusations. And he will tempt us, as he did Jesus in the desert, seeking to lure us away from God. Make sure you read really slowly pages 103 to 108 of your workbook, which gives further details about temptations and accusations. Don't fall for it. Resist. Hold the line. Now, a second battlefront is the cultural, which is a battle of ideas. There's a battle of ideas. There's many ideas in the cultural conversation today that are not based in truth. They're destructive. In fact, John Stone Street likes to say that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. There's a battle for our minds and our hearts. Our world is fixated on narratives today. And Satan wants to put out false stories about the world just as he did with Adam and Eve. So always evaluate the stories and claims you hear against the scriptures. We need to remember the better story of the gospel and resist and hold the line. So friends, if you want to grow in the Christian faith, you have to get on the battlefield and hold the line against the enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces. The reason Christians don't grow often is that they don't get on the battlefield and we pretend like there is no war. But there is. And so in the opening section, Paul makes it clear that there's a war we need to fight and then he moves on to the weapons of war. He says, master your arsenal. Master your arsenal. Now, Paul's writing here, most commentators will say, is, a, is focusing on the Roman soldier imagery in, in this passage as he describes these weapons. And you'll find the images of the armor of the Roman soldier on page 109 of your workbook. But as I also mentioned earlier, Paul has in, in view the divine warrior in Isaiah, a, guy, a God who fights for his people and then gives his people the means to fight. And so verse 14 to 17 outline the weapons that he gives us. And I think it's also important to state, and this is really important, that we need to put on the whole armor of God. Sometimes I hear people talking about things like the fruits of the Spirit. So when you, in Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit. There's you know, peace, patience, kindness. And some of you might say, well, I'm really good at peace and patience, but self-control, I don't do good at that. No, it, it, Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, meaning all of it. 
And when he's talking about the armor of God, he's talking about the same thing. You don't just put on the breastplate or just put on the belt. You put on all of it, every single piece of the armor, every day. And so he starts with this. He says, you got to stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So again, there it is. Stand your ground. Don't be afraid. Don't run. But look at each piece of armor slowly. And I'll consider each one of these these pieces of armor, they're all weapons. Weapon number one against the enemy is the belt of truth. And in this context, it refers to knowing the truth about our identity in Christ and then living out that truth. In this spiritual war, what does it mean to live out truth? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author, after he returned from being imprisoned in the gulags of Russia, recalled what life was like under communism. And he famously said this to his fellow Christians. He said, we must live not by lies. Live not by lies. And wearing the belt of truth means we don't believe the lies that Satan says about us. It means that we we don't give in to the lies of the world. We stand on the truth. And that may bring you under fire. What would happen if you question certain cultures of things like tolerance in your school or your workplace? Where do you need to stand for truth in this dark world? Weapon number two is the breastplate of righteousness, which is a reference to Isaiah 11.5, where we read, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Isaiah 59.17 says the same thing. Now, righteousness specifically refers to moral integrity. And when Paul talks about putting on the new self in Ephesians 4, he's talking about walking in moral integrity. Now think for just a moment about all the Christian leaders over the years, even recently, who have compromised their moral integrity and fallen into sin. What happened to their ministries? Some have been destroyed or disbanded. Ministries that were really effective at reaching the lost. Think about how marriages have broken up. Families have been affected due to the loss of moral integrity. See, if the enemy wants to take you out, if he wants to make you fall, he's going to attack moral integrity. And that is why the breastplate of righteousness is so important. Look at verse 15. He says, additionally, put on the shoe uh, as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this part of the armor is overlooked, but it's crucial in our growth. It's crucial in spiritual warfare. Weapon number three is the gospel itself. More than that, the way we grow in spiritual warfare is to be ready to be prepared to share the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Now, why is that important? When we come and when people come to faith in Christ, the kingdom of darkness is pushed back. It's not a mistake that Paul calls it the gospel of peace because when when Jesus rules the hearts of people in this world, war will end. This recalls the famous verse in Isaiah 52, 7 where the prophet says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Amen? But the gospel changes hearts. The gospel changes minds. And when minds and hearts are surrendered to Jesus, wars will cease. Are you ready to share the gospel and bring peace? That's how we grow in spiritual warfare. 
Every time you tell people about Jesus, you are waging war against the enemy. And there's going to be pushback, right? Because the truth is people are deceived. Too often we fight the wrong enemy. Too often we attack people when the real enemy, again, is the spiritual forces behind their blindness. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What the world needs is to have their eyes opened. They need to be set free from the spell the evil one has them under. Even even Vladimir Putin needs Jesus. Back in the Lord of the Rings... Gandalf has fought and defeated the Balrog, and he's become stronger. He's no longer Gandalf the Grey, now he's Gandalf the White. He knows war is coming, and he's trying to unite the people of Middle-earth. And so he goes to meet with King Theoden of Rohan. But King Theoden is under the spell of the evil wizard Saruman, and his puppet, Grima Wormtongue, is whispering lies in his ear all the time. And so Gandalf enters Theoden's hall and and frees him of the spell. And I want you to notice just how much resistance he encounters as he attempts to free the king. Watch this. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. Courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late, Theoden King. He's not welcome. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear. Last spell I name it. Ill news is an ill guest. Be silent. Give your forked tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. Stop. I told you to take the wizard. Stop. Too long you've sat in the shadows. (laughs) I would stay still if I were you. Hearken to me. I release you from the spell. You have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. (laughs) I will draw you, Saruman, as poison is drawn from a wound.
If I go, Theoden dies. You did not kill me. You will not kill him. Notice the transformation that happens in King Theoden once the spell is broken. That's what happens when people hear the gospel and are set free. Commentator Clinton Arnold helps us see this truth. He says, It is important to remember that spiritual warfare has nothing to do with literal physical warfare against human enemies. It represents a struggle against the ultimate enemies. The spiritual forces that stand behind and incite acts of literal violence, aggression, strife, bitterness, and actual flesh and blood warfare. Spiritual warfare is the solution to human warfare. So use the gospel to push back the darkness. Paul continues, verse 16. He says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. So weapon number four is the shield of faith. And at first glance, you might say, well, hold on, hold on. The shield is, is meant for defense. Yes, it can, it can push your enemy back, but it helps you stand firm. Now, faith in this context specifically refers to trust in God's power as well as, as assurance of our identity in Christ. And so the shield is a crucial weapon to master because this verse uh, also tells us about Satan's attacks, right? He attacks with flaming darts. Now, now for this weapon, uh, it's helpful to consider the, the shield of the Roman soldier because the shield was about the size of a door and it was large enough for the soldier to crouch behind and be protected from the enemy's arrows. And the outer, what they would do is the outer portion of the shield would be covered in wet calf skin, giving it the ability to extinguish the flaming arrows when it hit it. In fact, one archaeologist actually found a shield with almost 200 arrows in it. That's how protective it was. Now, the image of flaming darts or arrows would have been familiar to the people of, the, of Ephesus because the darts were designed to be set on fire. And when they landed on a target, it would, it would continue to burn persistently. That's how they were designed. And throughout church history, people have understood these arrows to represent Satan's schemes against God's people. In fact, the church father Origen famously made this interpretation. He said the arrows are the, are the devil's interjection of evil thoughts into the minds of believers. And so this is what Satan does. Right? He wants to poison your mind, like King Theoden. In their book, The Sacred Romance, Brett Curtis and John Eldridge uh, call these arrows sentences we live by, a really helpful illustration. In other words, over the course of our lives, people say a lot of things about us, statements that aren't true, but that we start believing. Statements like, I'm not good enough, or I'll never be strong enough, nobody loves me, 
I'm not beautiful. And these arrows get lodged in our hearts and they create wounds. And that's how Satan keeps us from being effective. His wounding distracts us and keeps us from living out our identity in Christ. What sentences are you living by? Where have those arrows wounded you? Take up the shield of faith, Paul says. And this has played out in other ways throughout church history, where there's been persecution by political authorities, accusations of sin, uh, false teaching by those who claim to be Christians, temptations to engage in behaviors that don't please God. The devil uses all of these arrows. Take up the shield of faith. And then Paul rounds out the armor in verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So weapon number five is the helmet of salvation. And here's another reference to that divine warrior in Isaiah 59, 17, where he too puts on the helmet of salvation because the helmet of salvation protects your mind and reminds us of the present reality of salvation. That our new identity in Christ reminds us that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross once and for all. And then he rose again from the dead to defeat sin, hell, death, and Satan. And so therefore, Paul writes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan's accusations are extinguished. Live that truth. And then finally, weapon six is the word of God itself. And that's the weapon that we most naturally associate with offense, the sword. Right? The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Now again, the Roman soldier imagery is helpful because this was not a long sword. Right? In fact, the word that Paul uses here could be associated with a knife. And what does that mean? That means that uh, when you use the sword of the spirit... The enemy wants to get so close to you that you can smell him, that you gotta, you got to fight him off with, with something like a knife. And the sword can be used for a counterattack and an offensive attack to strike. That's what the scriptures do. Now, it's become, it's become popular in recent years for people to start deconstructing their faith. And, and what people often mean when they say that is that they're, they're questioning whether the Bible is true. And while the Bible can certainly stand up to scrutiny, we also have to read it with humble hearts. We want the Word of God to teach us. In fact, I had a friend in seminary who once said, if you want to grow in in the Christian life and your faith, you don't just need to read the Bible. You need to let the Bible read you. Let it read your heart. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Now, let me give you one practical tip before I leave this section. Um, If you want to grow in spiritual warfare, you need to memorize the scriptures. When the fiery darts of the enemy come at us, you need to be ready to recall scriptures and thwart them. There's a wonderful website called fighterverses.com. This can get you started. Uh, You can do this as an individual or as a family with your kids because there's verses here each week that you memorize together. And when Satan brings accusations, one of my favorite verses to remember is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? Remember that verse. That's a fighter verse. Memorize the scriptures and be ready for the attack. Because the sword of the spirit can thwart the enemy's arrows and it can attack him directly. Do you have your sword at the ready? 
So to grow in spiritual warfare, you need to hold the line. You need to be ready for battle by mastering your arsenal. But Paul closes by reminding us where our true power lies. He says we need to rest in a greater power. Rest in a greater power. And this, this is where many Christians miss the mark. Right? Because our Western mindset teaches us that we have to do it ourselves. To trust in our own power. But the reality is we can't do it on our own. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 18, that we must be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer. He ends with prayer. Why? Because it is the foundation for spiritual warfare. It is the foundation for spiritual warfare precisely because it reminds us that we cannot do it on our own. There's a lion coming after us, but we have the lion of the tribe of Judah behind us. Keep alert, yes. Persevere, hold the line, yes. Pray for people everywhere, yes. Because we're all under attack. But ultimately, he concludes by saying that we need to rest in a greater power. That's how we fight this war. How did he start the whole section in verse 10? He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Be strong in who? Me? No. Be strong in his might. And prayer forces us to do that. And I'm not talking about a prayer that you pray silently before a meal where you're hoping nobody notices. (laughs) No, Paul is talking about a passionate prayer where you cry out to God in earnest. Where you say, Lord, I need you. I need you to fight for me. I cannot do this on my own. I need your strength and your power. God, help me. To lay down my burdens, my worries, my fears, my anxieties. You are the divine warrior who, yes, equips his people, but who goes into battle for his people. And church, here is the truth. We are lazy in prayer. We read a passage like Ephesians 6, and some of us, we've been reading this passage for years. We have it memorized, but we miss the point. We are trying to fight this war under our own strength. But the whole point of the passage is that we're to be strong in the Lord. And when the day of trouble comes, when the day of evil comes, cry out to him first. I follow a guy named Pastor Kevin DeYoung on Facebook, and he posted this the other day, which I think is spot on. He said, too often we turn to prayer as our last resort instead of our first and best option. And it stung my heart because... I get it. I don't like to ask for help. Right? It makes me feel weak. Right? I want to feel strong, and I want you to see what I did. But what the Lord has been teaching me over and over again recently is just simply this. Trust me. Trust me. Give me your burdens. You don't need to carry them. I will carry them, and I will fight for you. There's a war raging in your life. Where will you look, to me or someone else? And friends, I I understand. I'm in this too. Like, it's, it's not easy when war comes to you. 
But when it does, the question is, church, where will you look? Where will you look? Yes, you need to hold the line and stand firm. Yes, you need to master your arsenal. But none of it matters if you don't rest in the greater power of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I want to close with one final scene from the Lord of the Rings. And in this scene, King Theoden has retreated with his people to a fortress in the mountains called Helm's Deep. No enemy has ever penetrated it. Its walls are thick. But a great army of 10,000 orcs march on this fortress. King Theoden only has 300 soldiers. And he's trusting that no one can get into his fortress But then the walls are breached, and the enemy invades the inner portion, and all hope seems lost. And I wonder if that that may be what your life feels like today. Some of us are listening to this message now or later on, and, and you're walking through some challenging times. The walls of your fortress have been breached by the enemy. The flaming darts are falling, the raining down on you from every direction. You want to fight, but all hope seems lost. And in that moment, will you cry out to God and look to him? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And in their moment of hopelessness, King Theoden rides out with his men to fight to the end, the forces of darkness. And ultimately, they look to the east and they find hope. Watch this last scene. into the battle lines, they push back the enemy all the way and finally defeat them. And the point is, church, when all hope seems lost, will you rest in a power that's greater than you? Because he gives you the power you need to fight the forces of darkness, and one day in the future, and this is where the hope ultimately is, he will return to defeat the enemy once and for all. And so as we close, I just want you to listen how John describes this in Revelation 19, the end of time, the, where history is moving towards, and see if it reminds you of this, that last scene as the worship team comes and prepares for our final song. 
This is what John writes. He says, I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. And its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in his own blood that he gave for his people. And his title was the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing like a winepress. And on his robe at his thigh was written the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And church, one day that rider will come back to make all things right. He will wage the war to end all wars. And until that time, we have to fight with spiritual weapons. Hold the line, master your arsenal, but rest in that greater power. Amen? Man, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are the one who fights for us. You are that divine warrior, and the battle belongs to you. That no matter what giant is standing in front of us, a giant fiery balrog it may even be, Lord God, but you're standing behind us even greater. You are the lion of the tribe of Judah. Thank you for your victory on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin, Lord. Thank you for your resurrection to show that you are greater than all things in this world. You control this world, Lord. And thank you that one day you will return to put all things to right. And in that hope, we trust. We look to you. And in that hope, we fight with spiritual weapons for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.